How's it going? Welcome to Evolutionary Medicine. Cheers. Um, we are back. We've been off for a couple of weeks, and uh, coffee is is MIA at the moment. Right, but we have we have Javier, Javier. filling in. Right. Yep. Living testament to a post-death genetic conflict, I suppose. Right. <laughs> He's having leg conflicts at the moment. <laughs> hmm. Is that visible? No. He looks intact on yeah, that. Yeah, you can't quite see it, but they know. I've got the, the legs separately. Great. It's, uh, it's going to take a little creativity to fix his, his leg. So his acetabulum is unhappy. Hmm. So that's your Needs a good joint. orthopedist. That's right. That's right. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, we need a props tool case. That's totally right. Mm -hmm. Some some sort of like fun, fun, cool tool to use for it. It's, I might just have to duct tape it, brute force it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, welcome back. Um, we are, uh, we are Joe and myself, Kate. Joe Alcott. Yes, yeah. that's right. Thanks for having me back, Kate. And, uh, yes, of course. And, mm -hmm. um, we haven't been on for a while, and I feel a little rusty, so just full transparency. And I'm still a little, little symptomatic here, so you can probably hear it in my voice <laughs> that I'm still plaguey. And mine too, although I think mine is allergy. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. It's, it's the season for, for all of the nasal things. This, yeah. It is um, impressive, though, how it's hard to tell. I know. You know I had a couple of days where yeah. I just... I, you think you're, I, you have a cold or something? I have a cold, but... The mulberry and the ash and the juniper pollen <clears throat> mm -hmm. levels are off the charts. Yep. And, and I, I have, I'm sure I have that as well, so. Just makes everything better. I or, know, or right? Schrodinger and Eclair, thank you for those follows. All um, right. Yeah, so like, it's, uh, it's kind of, uh, it's hard to tell. I, I've definitely had more allergy symptoms here that mimic colds than I've had anywhere else I've ever mm -hmm. lived. So. This is a highly allergic place. Mm -hmm. We should have we had an allergy episode well, of we this. We talked about some hygiene I mean, hypothesis. Like, yeah, like microbiome yeah. stuff. Yeah, I don't think we ever did a but deep like dive. not a full deep dive. A deep dive into allergy. Yeah. We've, yeah. I mean, it's the time of year. Yeah, we could make so. it kind of practical. Like, what do you do? Sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I I I would be down for mm -hmm. that. All right. For sure, since I have plenty of them. <laughs> Hosebeat says, Mulberry is truly the great Satan of the allergy world. <laughs> they are bad. My neighbor has one. It just, it just rains those little pollen bundles mm -hmm. into, our, into our driveway. They make their way into our oh, garage. Yeah. Of course, the wind sometimes Gross. blows here 50 miles an hour. It's supposed to get windy later also on this week. Also a spring thing here. Yeah. Good stuff. Yes. But it's like 80 degrees, so I can't mm -hmm. complain. Yeah. So. Nice summery day today. Yes, it's basically summer now. We've kind of bypassed spring. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, no. We had a we had a decent spring. I feel like yeah, 60s, 70s. Although I have a picture of myself from last year. Yeah. Up on Sandia Crest in our local mountains, mm -hmm. and there was I, was I was able to go cross country skiing on Cinco de Mayo last year. Dang. Yeah. Dang. Of course, I'm a little extreme. I mean, if there's a little patch of snow, I make my way out there. But now there's yeah. no snow whatsoever. Yeah, there's nothing. Wow. <laughs> Mike Sy says, I drink beer to help with allergies. I've never had allergies, so I can only assume it's working and I should not stop Yeah, whatever now. you do, don't stop. <laughs> yeah. I think your logic is sound, Mike. Right. <laughs> uh, um, so, okay. So, yeah. Um, Joe and Javier and I mm -hmm. are going to be talking about genetic conflicts today. Um what the hell does that mean, you ask? 
And it really comes from a paper published by David Haig, who yes. is an evolutionary biologist, and he's from Harvard. I think he's actually originally from Australia. Oh, okay. He's an Australian, yeah. but he's been at Harvard for decades. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a paper way back in 1993 Ooh, that was entitled... Basically the Dark Ages. <laughs> yeah, but good stuff. Yeah. Um, entitled Genetic Conflicts in Pregnancy. Yes. And so that's, that's kind of where it comes from. And really, this whole episode is an homage to David Haig. Yeah, and, and it's work. a very reproductive focus, yeah. certainly. So we'll, it's, it's reproductive. There's a few things that are not reproductive. Yeah. Um, the cool thing about David Haig is this work that he kind of pioneered. It, he has a, a fleet of people that have studied under him, and now there's this whole group of people doing kind of amazing work in this area. Yeah, but the basic idea is that um, our bodies and things that happen to us, in particular <clears throat> if we're female and we're pregnant, mm -hmm. that there's some, there's some opportunities for conflict between the cells in our bodies and then between the, the genes in our bodies. Yep. So that's that's true for all of us, male or female. And between the the host and fetus, essentially host, I should say mother. Yeah. But, but it is it is like kind of host. weirdly parasitic. Parasite. <laughs> it's kind of I mean it's a similar like dynamic. Yeah. In some ways. The, the pregnancy is so. parasite. And yeah. We'll, and certainly the placenta seems to act mm -hmm. that way. And I'm sure some pregnant women feel that way. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So. So I, you know, we'll we'll plunge into this in great detail. But just to give kind of an overview of what we're going to talk about, we are going to, we are going to talk about the idea that when women are pregnant, that there's a tug of war or a bit of a conflict, that the interests of the fetus and the mother are not a hundred percent in in alignment. There there are some areas where there's a little bit of struggle for resources and for various things that the mom could either give to the fetus or not give, or the right. fetus could take without the mother's permission. Mm -hmm. And so this is, it's just, it kind of belies the idea that pregnancy is this wondrous, you know, terrific time yeah, of the, miracle. The, yeah, the, the, uh, of harmony and, and light and mm -hmm. flowers and, and all that. And so there's, there's, I have to there's, say, a, there's a bloody struggle going on. As a woman time. considering the possibility yeah. of being pregnant at some point in my lifetime, I have literally never thought about it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Some people do, and they're like eager, I know, eager to get yeah. pregnant. Um, I've just yeah. never, I've never right. understood that. Right. <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't have me. children, either you know, biologically or right. via my wife. Um, so yeah, uh, but I, I'm amazed that, that that women go into this whole pregnancy thing so without you know, without really yeah <laughs> giving this stuff a second thought. So yeah, so people that right. are considering getting pregnant, um, this stuff is actually worth knowing about. And totally. The, and there, that there are these, these conflicts of interest. They can actually result in diseases. Pregnancy is a risky time of life for people. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of the reason is that the cells in the fetus and the cells in the mom, they don't always get along. Yep. So that's one. Um, I, I mentioned that even me as a, a male who's unlikely to get pregnant, is you know, the, these conflicts exist in me. Maybe in like 50 years we'll have there might There might be a way. I'm, I'm not interested. <laughs> There was a really good recent uh, SNL skit about that. Yeah. Or no, yeah, was it SNL? I think it was SNL. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty funny. <laughs> so, but even in a guy, um, there, there are, there could be maternal cells. So my mother's cells from that pregnancy might be in me. Oh, right? wow. So that's called microchimerism. So anytime that there's cells of a different genetic makeup, there's a potential for conflict there yeah, too. Yeah, like a chimera. Yeah. So right? we are, we are all, it turns out, 
measurably and detectably chimeras. Wow. Which is I've actually totally known some people who had nuts. like their twins stuck inside. I had one woman that I huh. knew whose twin had she had essentially absorbed her twin while they were both still in utero. Right. And it it got stuck inside of her ovary. So as a teen, mm. it manifested as like essentially like ovarian cancer symptoms. Right. And they they went in and had to remove it and then found that her twin was in there and had no idea up until that point. Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Science is cool, guys. <laughs> that also made me think of, so yeah, you can have these things that, that are <clears throat> natural, but they are like, they are like tumors. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the placenta can actually act like, like a tumor. And there can be a placenta growing in a, in a, in a uterus of a pregnant woman, but there's no fetus, there's no embryo. It's right. all placenta. That's, That's called a molar pregnancy. So a lot of these reproductive medical words are, are kind of, you know, they're kind of archaic. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the molar pregnancy, I'm not even sure where that comes from. Um, like M-O-L-A-R. Yeah, yeah, like a molar, like a tooth. Like a tooth. Hmm. But the molar pregnancy is where you're pregnant just with a placenta. And that double, it's, we'll, we'll get into this, why that happens. But it's particularly bad. Hmm. And women that have that uh, have a high rate of complications. And I had a patient with this recently. Dang. Yeah. Oh, wow. Young That's woman crazy. came in, pregnant. She was actually referred because the clinic had recognized that she didn't have a normal pregnancy. Mm, and okay. she came to my hospital. I was working at a place where we didn't even have an obstetrician or so we had to transfer her. Oh, wow. But she ended up, I, I, I checked out and she actually did okay. But she had this molar pregnancy. Wow, Trippy. that's crazy. And then there's yeah. ectopic pregnancies too, which is that that's right. a whole different thing. But yeah. I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but it's where a pregnant, a fertilized, an egg gets fertilized inside of the fallopian tube as opposed to inside the uterus. Right. There. And so, it starts to grow in there and that's not good. No, it's very, very bad because if it gets big enough, it can actually rupture and then it causes massive amount of bleeding. Mm -hmm. And uh, for reasons that actually have to do with what we'll talk about, a little bit today with the way that the fetal cells remodel the mom's arteries. So the arteries are not capable of actually squeezing down and contracting. And so they become these fire hoses of blood. Mm. And we, I, I can think of a bunch of cases. Terrifying. So if a young woman comes in who's near death and hasn't like fallen off of a roof or been in a car accident, it's something we have to think about. Dang. That's, yeah, that's really scary. Um, hey, Uncle Bill, how's it going? Um, just so you guys know, um, Joe has a blog post that kind of gives an overview of this stuff. And this is something you reference in your class, too, right? That's right. The blog post. Um, and I'm going to post the link in chat in case you guys want to take a deeper look. So, yeah. So, the, this particular link is I used for my class back in 2012. Yeah. And I don't think I've updated it. So it's yeah. Much. So maybe a little so outdated. A little out of date. Sure. But just take take that. It has all all the good stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. And really lays the the groundwork for the <laughs> papers that were so important in this area. Yeah. <laughs> this is just lovely, says Mike. <laughs> I know horror stories, man. Mm -hmm. It's it, every woman has them. Yeah. No joke. But but truth truthfully, yeah. If a woman comes in, this is something that we think about just in emergency medicine. <clears throat> you know, we, we tell our our the residents and trainees about this that the most important single test that we can get in a woman who comes in is a pregnancy test. Yeah. Because pregnancy is risky. Yeah, it's and super And it has dangerous. these potentially lethal kind of things that can happen to people like the ectopic pregnancy or the molar pregnancy. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know about the molar pregnancy. Yeah. 
I feel like that's somehow I've I've failed mm -hmm. as a person who could potentially come pregnant, become pregnant. <laughs> well, it's rare. <laughs> we'll give yeah, you that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so, okay, let's maybe, should we head over to some slides here? Yeah, and I guess let's, um, when we, we can stay on the title slide here for a second. Yeah. Um, I never actually taught and just a straight evolutionary biology class. And mm -hmm. I usually, in the classes I do teach, I just plunge right into the medical implications. I'm a physician, so sure. that's the part that interests me. But this stuff that we're talking about, it really dates back to a guy by the name of W.D. Hamilton, or William Hamilton, or Bill Hamilton. Okay. Uh, he was an evolutionary theorist, mm -hmm. evolutionary biologist, and he essentially said that uh, the problem of altruism, or why it is that people do good things to each other, that that relates to how genetically related you are to somebody. So in other words, I would be more likely to behave in a cooperative or an altruistic fashion and engage in self-sacrifice to someone who's a first-degree relative. Yeah. Like a parent. Kin, kin recognition. Yeah. Parent, uh, child, with whom I share, on average, 50% of my genes. Um, and then, you know, a aunt would be 25%. Uh, a cousin is... Half that. Yeah. So eight cousins equals me, more or less. So I would mm -hmm. sacrifice myself willingly for eight cousins. Right. Well, along with, if you want to think purely mathematically about these kinds of things, <laughs> that, that's more or less what W.D. Hamilton said. Um, then another guy, uh, R. Trivers. Um, ah. You know yes. about him? Yes. Yeah. What do you know about him? Rutgers, right? Yeah. That's yeah. where he's at now. Yeah. He, uh, well, Gandhi went there and worked with Trivers. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's cool. Yep. So, Dr. Gandhi Yatish, who we had on a couple weeks ago, I guess Talk that was the that last was episode. Yeah, we yeah. went our deep dive into sleep. Yes, yeah. So, he, he went to Rutgers University for, mm -hmm. for undergrad and worked with Trivers. I did not know that. Yeah. So, Trivers is... That's about, that's about the extent that I know about He's him. super famous <laughs> to say that as an extension of this idea that, yeah, we're, we're, we are less cooperative the more distantly we, were, we are related to people. Um, just again, this is a, just a mathematical way of understanding genes for altruism, if these, if these supposed genes existed. And you know, the cooperation and conflict and altruism is a huge topic in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But that's just the mathematical basis of kind of the traditional evolutionary medicine way, of, or evolutionary biological way of right. thinking about these things. Um, Trivers had the insight that, you know, we're not 100% related to our kin, that even in a family, because there is not this, we're not twins with our children, that there's going to be a potential for conflict uh, or parent-offspring conflict. Mm -hmm. You only share 50% of your genes. So there's a, there's a potential that you know, the, the interests may be a little bit um, not aligned perfectly. Okay, And so this would explain why, say, families might, why siblings might uh, fight with each other over resources and why uh, there's going to be a conflict uh, between offspring or children and parents over the over the parental resource allocation between different children. Right. Uh, children are going to be selfish, and they're going to want more for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And the parents are going to want to give. All right. So that's the insight that Trivers had. Um, and what David Haig said was he took this idea of Trivers and said, well, if that's the case, that the fetus wants more than the parent wants to give up, which is this parent-offspring conflict, that happens during pregnancy too. Right. Okay. So that's the background. If you guys, yes. you, there's. In that uh, uh, blog entry, there are links that take you to W.D. Hamilton and at least at least re refer to him and Trivers and this whole thing. So, yeah. 
All right. So, so Trivers is, you know, he's this legend in evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. um, I've never met the man. Me neither. Uh, but he's he's got a very interesting story. Yes. Uh, I'm sure we'll make a great biopic one day. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> cool stuff. <laughs> so that's the back. That's the background. Yeah. So conflict over resources, essentially. Yeah, that's what that's you know stuff stuff right. that we can fight for. Yes. And we'll get into what that is. But during pregnancy, it's basically. You can think of it as being glucose or blood flow. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. right? Got to get them cows. Yeah. So to go way back, I was actually in graduate oh, school when David Haig's paper came out, the original one. It was this genetic conflicts in pregnancy. And um, I remember reading it. So this is before I even had an idea that I was going to go to medical school. Uh, but when I did go to medical school, I remember reading the reproduction book. It was a, it was a paper textbook on obstetrics and gynecology mm -hmm. and thinking that the pregnancy stuff was so cool and it all made this great sense in terms of this evolutionary story. But of course the evolution was missing from the textbook. It wasn't there. Yeah. And even now, what, however many decades later, they're still not teaching medical students and obstetric residents this stuff. It's the stuff actually, by David and, and like even just evolution in general yeah. too, it, it kind of blows my mind still that this is not everywhere. It doesn't make any sense to me. But yeah, so hopefully we'll tell you by the end of this <clears> that you, if you, you can't understand disorders of pregnancy without this underlying dynamic yeah. of the conflicts in pregnancy. Right. And that evolutionary biology explains it all or puts it into, into perspective and makes it easier to learn. So I've had students who have yeah. gone on to become obstetricians, and I was the one to teach them about this. Mm -hmm. And people have to rediscover this stuff. It's just not part of the curriculum. Yep. Which is such a bummer. So sad. So here's a representative paper by David Haig. Yes, and Chris, and Chris Graham, Graham. Mm -hmm. and it, it it takes this uh, the insight that we that mothers are about fifty percent related on average to their fetus. That means that if you think about it, you got an egg and a sperm. So that's, they both have a genetic packet in each one of them. Yep. They combine. They make an embryo. One hundred percent embryo. One hundred percent embryo. <laughs> and that baby then shares fifty percent of its genes that come from the mother are right. in common. So, so basically moms are 50% related to their babies. So there's this other 50% that comes from the dad. Yep. Okay. So that's, so it's worth thinking about any gene which is in the baby, think about where did it come from? Did it come from mom or did it come from dad? Yep. And David Haig had this idea that, you know what, that might just matter. You know, it might yeah. matter which, where, which parent the gene, the gene copy comes from mm -hmm. in terms of how it is. Sure. So this, this, this paper had to do with the insulin-like growth factor two, two receptor. Yes, so genomic I, imprinting and the yeah. strange case yeah. of the insulin-like growth factor two receptor. So David Haig is a little bit poetic. Yeah, he, I was going to say he's he trying to make up it with, like with uh, good titles super, for his papers. Super, super fun. It's a mystery. <laughs> so insulin-like growth factor two, because it's a growth factor, mm -hmm. it makes babies grow. Yes. Right? Now, and it, it, it a, like looks like insulin or like acts like insulin uh -huh. in terms of shape and all of that. Right. That's the insulin-like part. So the bottom line is, is function is that it makes, makes babies grow. Yeah. So if there's a fight over resources and resources being things like glucose or blood flow, uh, you might imagine, and what, <clears throat> what Trevor's suggested was that if there's a fight between parent and child over resources, moms might want to withhold just a little bit. Of, of energy that goes into the baby. And the baby might want just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And that this ends up being a bit of a tug of war. And that, oh, often it just evens out and you end up with a healthy pregnancy, healthy baby, and everybody's happy. Yes. But if you look a little more carefully, you realize there's, there's a strange thing here. That 
the, you know, I told you that, that for every, you know, every gene, you get a copy from mom and you get a copy from dad. Yes. And that uh, for a lot of genes, you know, you end up silencing one copy because you don't want to have double expression of, 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 the, right. of the copy. So mm -hmm. one, one copy gets silenced oftentimes. And um, in this case, it really depends on which parent it comes from. It can be random uh, depending on other things in your body, but some of them have this strange phenomenon called imprinting. And imprinting is where either the gene gets turned on or turned off depending on which parent you inherit it from. Right. So we could just stop right now because the, the lesson, lesson here is that if you think about it, dad's genes want to take more resources, want to take more resources, more glucose, more blood flow from mom than mom wants to give up. That's really the, the guiding principle here. It is. And that's like, that comes from the assumption that as a dad, you are, you're essentially investing sperm in this pregnancy early on, right? Um, and whereas the mom has to invest egg plus all of the resources to actually make the baby grow, time, risk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and if you're trying to sort of, as a, as a dad, if you're trying to maximize your, uh, your reproductive fitness and you want your babies to, to grow, be healthy, et cetera, you're essentially, I mean, I can't say that the person wants this because this is not a conscious thing. Right. It's really easy to, to think yeah, about that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's Dad's true. Dad's genes Dad want wants more. the more, yeah, you know? wants so more this resources. Is all, this is all just scientific shortcuts in terms of our language here. Yeah, yeah. But the basic idea is, is a good one. It's that yeah, it's, it's that your your genes have a kind of a vested interest in in pushing for additional resources because that's going to increase your reproductive fitness. The other way to think about it is that dad is related to this particular pregnancy, right? Know, whatever yes. whatever pregnancy it happens to be, right? But that dad may not be related to the next pregnancy. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah. that actually happens. Right. That happens. Yeah. Know, yeah. People break up. They get yes. remarried, or you know, or other stuff happens. And is, that's especially true in, let's say, our last common ancestor with other great apes, or even in chimpanzees today, mm -hmm. where you have more of a promiscuous mating system. So there's no, uh, there's not per paternity certainty a lot of the times in, in apes, where you would actually know that you are, you personally are the father of that child, um, and then you also don't know who's going to end up mating with that with that female next too so yeah so the consequence of that is that mom has her whole reproductive you know hey timeline sorry just saying hello yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to, to think about so she's gonna invest in this pregnancy you know invest resources pregnancy takes up a lot of mom's uh, embodied capital to talk yes. about you know that's another social yeah, science. Yeah. You know, term. That's a whole other thing. Whole other thing. Mom <laughs> gives up something for this pregnancy. Mom's gonna want to retain a little bit of her health for future pregnancies, whereas Dad's gonna care a little bit less less about that because he might not be the dad of those future pregnancies. So, from the selfish gene perspective, again, Dad's gonna want more mm -hmm. from Mom during that pregnancy right. than Mom's gonna want to give up. So that's the bit. That's the bottom line. Yeah. All right. So I told oh, you. Oh, and Hosby says the the return on investment takes eighteen years to mature, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. About. Yeah. It's a super long investment. Totally. And mom, mom is investing more during the pregnancy. Yes. Immediately after the pregnancy with breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And then even for the child rearing, mom's given up a ton for these babies. Yeah, right. Yeah, so there's a lot of consequences of that too. Okay.
So insulin growth factor makes you grow more. So if you had to guess which parent the gene is going to be expressed and turn on, you, you, you would kind of be able to guess it. All right? If it makes you grow more, that's going to be a gene that, that dad is, dad's going to want to turn that gene on. Right. Mom's going to want to turn it off, which is exactly what you see. And what, that's what this, this paper shows. Yes. Is that for the IGFR2, um, if you inherit the gene, the gene copy from dad, <clears throat> it gets turned on. And it makes baby uh, essentially suck Grow glucose more. out of mom, turn it into, into tissue and proteins and cells in the baby. And if, it, if, it, if the baby, <laughs> the copy that's inherited from mom turns off, it tries to restrain that growth. Okay? So that's, that's what happens with this particular gene. Yeah. But this principle is true for a bunch of different things, not yeah. just the insulin-like growth factor. I'm guessing that's on the next slide. Well, we've find out. I've right. actually forgotten what these slides show. A summary. So you know what? Oh, nice. Don't you hate it when you when like someone talks for like an hour and they give you a summary slide and they're like, "Oh, that's that's what he was talking about or she was talking about." You know, we just we just figured we put the summary slide up front. Okay. This is just a summary. Paternal genes or the genes that are derived in the fetus from dad, they increase resource extraction. They take more. But the maternal copy of the gene that's in the fetus tends to resist it, okay? So this is the, the gene which is shared between mom and baby. Yes. And this is a tug of war, and that usually they balance out and you get no problems. Right. But if, if the balance gets pushed one way or the other, then we see pregnancy complications. And this might be one reason why we see so many pregnancy complications. Usually young women, as I mentioned, they're healthy, and right. they're going to do great, and they're not sick. And this is why it's so important for physicians, especially obstetricians who are actually going to be involved in keeping a mom healthy during pregnancy and then having a healthy delivery. They mm -hmm. need to know about this because if these complications come up right. and you can actually you actually know potentially where it's coming from evolutionarily, that's very helpful. That's right. And we'll give you a very real life, <laughs> uh, you know, some Again, don't take medical advice from a podcast or sure, from a video yeah. stream. Right. But some <laughs> advice that a medical trainee or a person who was thinking about getting pregnant might want to think about. We'll, we'll mention that. Yeah. But yeah, the bad stuff that happens during pregnancy, pregnancy-induced hypertension, yep. which is you know the, the blood pressure. Usually during pregnancy, the blood pressure is lower than normal. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Which also is mom's way of not again, squeezing glucose and blood right. into baby. <laughs> All right? So... If you have hypertension pre-pregnancy, mm -hmm. then what does that mean for blood pressure during pregnancy? Your blood you pressure during likely? pregnancy should be lower than your pre-pregnancy. It would still go down, yep. but does that change risk factors for, for preeclampsia and stuff? It's possible that it might. Okay. That's complicated. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so eclampsia, though, is a fancy word for seizures that happen during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And preeclampsia is somewhere in between hypertension and eclampsia. Because right. eclampsia is a state in which the blood pressure is sky high. Yep. And it's very, very bad. Yes. All right? Don't want that. So that's, that's all blood pressure. So the yep. way I want you to think about pressure here is that pressure is the way that blood and glucose get through the placenta and into the baby. Yep. All right? So from the baby's perspective, hey, pressure good. Yep. A lack of the pressure. Yep. You know? Pressure mom, means feast for me. That's right, a little feast. Yeah. From mom's perspective, pressure bad. So that's, again, taking a little bit too much. Yep. So blood pressure might be one way that the fetus gets more from mom than mom wants to give up. All right? It's, now, if, if mom is, has eclampsia, that's bad. That's when the tug of war gets completely pulled over to one side, both sides mm -hmm. fall down, and everybody's sick. But what you might imagine, the baby actually wants that blood pressure to be a little bit higher than what mom wants it to mm -hmm. be. Again, I'm using want as a shorthand. 
This is not scientifically right. Yeah, yeah. The baby doesn't really have a consciousness in no, these certainly not. Right. Okay. Uh, we have a really fantastic question here from Let's mysteriously. Do male and female fetuses require different levels of resource extraction? So, how does this play into uh, the sex of the actual pregnancy? The short answer is I don't know. That's um, a really good question. The, you know, my gut reaction to this <clears throat> one is that the stuff we're talking to about about this right now don't doesn't matter if the fetus is male or female, because even a female baby has received half of her genes. From right. Dad. The, so we're the talking same about, like maternal paternal gene yeah. sourcing is still true. It's the, it's the sourcing. It's like where did this gene come from? Did it come from mom or did it come from dad? Although I feel like I mean there are definitely things that are influenced by whether a copy is on an X chromosome versus a Y, um, or like the fact that you have if you have two X's you have two copies, whereas with a Y you don't. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't know. I feel like there. I, I mean we probably just don't know, but. I wouldn't be if surprised just, yeah. if there was something that had to do with the fact that you only have one X versus two. Oh, I'm sure there is. Yeah. Um, what I do know is that from the mom's perspective, male babies tend to be bigger mm -hmm. than, than female babies, and they're bigger throughout life, right? Sure. On average. And as a, as a cost to mom, male babies are more costly. So right. there's, some, there's some evolutionary reasons just for why that's of true. Growth. Yeah, so there's a, a researcher by the name of Birgitta Holligard, okay. and she is a prize winner featured speaker at our Evolutionary Medicine Conference oh. this summer in oh. August in Park in City, Utah. Utah. Yes. It's going to be fun. That's right. So she's one of our featured speakers. So she's done work showing that male, the, male babies are costly. What's the date of that conference? August 1st through 4th. Awesome. Put it on your calendar. There please, you please, uh, please join us. <laughs> we can have these conversations in, yeah. in, in real life. Yeah. You're going, um, right? I might go. I'm supposed to go home to Massachusetts at some point. Well, we're going to be in Massachusetts, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, in, after? Like, right before. Or, oh, right before. Uh -huh. So I would probably end up having to go after. Okay. I think it's, like, the second week of August. Yeah, it I turns out I have more relatives in Massachusetts than anywhere else. I was born in Boston. Really? Yeah. Man, I did not know that. Got a ton of relatives there. So we do the family get-together thing every summer. <clears throat> Which is very nice. Yes, hysteriously, Y chromosome only can come from from dad. That's yes. true because mom doesn't that have one. Mom Unless mom is a chimera one. of some sort. That's true. Yeah, you some, can have some, some moms hanger, could be XXY. On. Yeah, right. right. Mm -hmm. Which is yep. even yeah. Well, okay. Which, if you which have a Y, that, that? that makes you Kleinfelters. It's Kleinfelters. Yeah, so okay, you are you would appear to be phenotypically male. Male. Right. Right. You would, if you have an XXY, chances are you would have a penis. I know, yeah, I know that like a lot of those but literally not, not a very big one. are usually associated <laughs> with like infertility and stuff yeah, too. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe maybe no pregnancy happening there. Mm -hmm. um, but yes. Uh, what what were we talking about? <laughs> we're talking about Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a cool place. It's probably really cold. And right the now. and the conference and the fact that yeah. Yes. So, but male babies do extract <clears throat> a bigger cost from mom than female babies. And that has some evolutionary implications. Yeah. And this uh, fantastic scientist, Birgitta Holligard, who's from Copenhagen, does work on that very topic. But I it's a little bit. Go to Copenhagen. I think it is actually it is related to this. And I apologize that we'll have to maybe we can get Birgitta on the on the Ooh, video. Yeah. On Nursa TV. We sometime. can Skype her in. We should Skype her in. Yeah, yeah. She's very cool. Yeah. You see, you know all the the big names. We should mm -hmm. get like Nessie we could get David Haig. and Haig. Yeah. All right. Do you know Wendy Trevithan? 
Uh, she was, so she's an anthropologist. She <laughs> was at Las Cruces, uh, in Las Cruces, okay. uh, New Mexico State. She wrote one of the very first textbooks yeah. on evolutionary medicine. And she was my first guest speaker at the evolutionary oh, medicine cool. class that I taught. Nice. So she came and gave a guest lecture. And she's very nice. And that's what I remember about her. Yes. Well, <laughs> she so also talks you know about reproductive stuff. Yeah. Yeah. She's all about how modern industrial birthing, you mm -hmm. know, where we put people under the knife and we do C sections and we screw little monitors in the, in the baby's skulls to me measure their heart rate and do oh. all these bizarre things. That's um, horrible. She's a. She, she basically her her idea is that we can learn something from how women traditionally gave birth. Sure. And about how the interactions that that, that typically women have a female birth attendant, uh, mm -hmm. like a midwife, right? Right. And that that's very common in human societies, and that the way that women give birth traditionally actually facilitates and reduces some of the harms from childbirth. That's different from what we're talking about today. Right. But uh, yeah, she's cool. Yeah. I like, I like yeah, we should we cool. should use some of your connections. Get some get some right. people on here. You know, I, I just need that little poke. Yeah, yeah. You just you just ask me to do it, and we'll, we'll yeah, make let's it happen. do it. Yeah, I mean, right. there's I mean, we already had Gandhi on, so there's mm -hmm. no reason why we can't have more remote guests. Let's have some more so, remote guests. Yeah, let's do it. Yep. Yeah, I'm game. Okay. So let's <clears> check <throat> out what we have. Uh... Okay. Next next slide. Ba bam. Interbirth intervals, another David Haig paper. All right. Looks like. So think about, yeah, so David Haig again. So think about it from the baby's perspective. Baby <clears> is being <throat> breastfed, life is good, life is safe, getting all yes. the resources from mom. Um, mom might want to get pregnant again, perhaps. You know, just think Sweet about a, tra a traditional you know, human society. So, so what David Haig also argues is Ooh. that, <laughs> is that the, the interval between births is going to be something that babies and mom fight about. All right? So Sweet if you think bro, about thank it, you for that tier three sub. Thank you, thank tier you. Tier three sub. Where is my, there we go, there's my emotes. Sweet. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And thank you for gifting. Oh, man. Gifting uh, subs got, left and right. Here we go. We got that's we a, got Santa Bros back. That's a pretty sweet emote. Yeah, it's a popcorn. Nobody hmm. knows what it is, though. It's popcorn, but it also kind of looks like a squid. So I just go with both. All right. You know. <laughs> but it's for, we get, we uh, do... We do popcorn throwing for, mm -hmm. for tangents that last too long. Hey, hey we're good at tangents. So, I know, right? Even without coffee, because yeah. Coffee Brown is like the expert at tangents. He is an expert in tangents. Yeah, I, I would say that is a, a big theme of the whole channel, is, is the, the well-informed tangents that we mm -hmm. break into. Uh, and another one from, for Stu and for Asteriously. Thank you so much, sweet bro. Thanks, guys. And for Exacto Knife. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are rich in emotes. We are rich. Well, actually, we need we need more. Yeah. I, I I have many ideas for emotes. Mm -hmm. We only have three spots, so I need more spots. But that has to be. All right. So the, things listen, have to occur. The deal with this interbirth <laughs> interval yes. is that babies are perfectly happy with the status quo. They definitely don't want another baby to show up. That's going to interrupt <clears> lactation <throat> and breastfeeding and maybe take resources away from that growing baby. Right. So we would we expect conflict over. The interbirth interval, and that which mom, is that it's it's the yeah. time between pregnancies, essentially, right, or births, really. So but. in a in a in a traditional society, mom might want to have more births close together, according to David Haig. Yeah, right. And the baby might want them spread a little bit thank further you, apart. Seriously, thank you, thank you for those bits. And there's different ways that that could happen. All right, he has some crazy ideas about this. One of David Haig's ideas is that babies cry at night and keep mom awake. 
to prevent her from having sex and having another baby. What? <laughs> I think he's published that idea. Really? Yeah. So the whole idea is that the sleep disruption, mom's totally crazy, so is dad. They yeah, can't yeah. Sleep. They're, so they're, they're out of their mind. No, they're fighting with each other. No libido going on in that moment. Yeah. So that's a, actually that's a well documented thing is that when people are sleep deprived, they tend to yeah. fight more. So there's more sure. there's more family conflict that happens. Right. So yeah, more conflict, less sex, baby Ooh, happy, right? I don't know. I mean, happy baby. yeah, I mean, especially it's funny though because <laughs> if if they're specifically doing it at night, it's the baby has clearly never heard of afternoon delight, like clearly. Clearly. <laughs> and again, when we say baby wants this or, or doesn't want that, again, this is a shorthand. Baby's not conscious of any of these things. <laughs> we think. Right. You know, who knows what's going on in that old baby's brain? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Uh, um, okay, so did we have a, did we have a, did we tie a bow on injured birth intervals? Yeah, we got to move on. All right. Just making sure. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a little distracted by the, the amazing support coming in. Thank That's you guys so much. Good stuff. Um, <laughs> Baby equals cock blocker confirmed. That's right. Thanks, seriously. That's, that's good. That's right. That's, uh, a perfect. That's, <laughs> Thank you for those three months. It's a great, great insight. That's, yeah, seriously. So anybody <laughs> recognize this image? This is, uh, if, you saw, if you saw Cosmos. Yeah, this is from the, the first Cosmos the, or the second the, Cosmos. Is it the Voyager? No. So yeah, Voyager 1. Yeah, Voyager 1. one. Yeah. yeah, right. Which is way out in space somewhere. Yeah. So the idea is it's got a, it's got a picture of a male human and... A female human, adult. Yes. And the male has his, has his hand up, which either he's he's, he's, take, he's taking doing the, the of, hey guys, doing basically. a oath of office, yeah. or he is uh, saying hello. He's saying hello. hello. Yeah. Interesting. He's saying hello, and she's not, right? Nope. She's just along huh. for the ride just, because yeah. that's how sexism works. That's how sexism works. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So the idea is we want to cooperate with aliens that we might encounter in different planets. That's the idea. But so that's a cooperation problem between different species. So. Really, what, what I was trying to get at here is that, that in pregnancy, it's a cooperation problem. To have a healthy pregnancy, you have to solve this issue of resolving conflict right. and cooperating with different cells, regardless of the genetic makeup. Um, but also knowing where the source of conflict is coming from is super important for doctors and for patients, people considering getting pregnant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the cooperation problem is bigger than that because it involves our, how we get along with our own cells. This, this actually relates to cancer, too. Oh, how so? Do tell. <laughs> of course, I'm going small to. Small tangent, yeah. <laughs> small tangent, yeah, but it's, small it's related. Tangent. So cancer is a is a cooperation problem, or how do we how do we not have cancer? How do our cells actually all get along and kind of pull for the team and all be on the same wavelength and help help us survive and be you know successful organisms or human beings where all the cells have a common goal, which is survival and reproduction. That's what we're all about as biological beings, right? So, but it breaks down if, if we get a big tumor in our in our liver. Um, again, working yesterday in the ER, I had a, several patients with cancer, mm. and cancer is a breakdown of cooperation in our own cells. But the point is that what I told you is that the problem with pregnancy is that mom only shares fifty percent of her genes with the baby. Right. Therein lies the conflict. When you have cancer, your cancer cells undergo mutation, mm -hmm. and the more genetically messed up or unlike the rest of your cells those cancer cells are, the more likely that that cell is going to be, going to be horrifically malignant and right. be more likely to metastasize and kill you. So you can tell something if you do, do a little biopsy and measure the genetic aberrancy or really how different it is from you. It's the same principle applies. When that, when that, when that cell is no longer you, when, it's, when that cooperation is broken down, 
then, then you can run into because problems. Because the cancer cells are not recognized as you anymore, right? Yeah. Well, it's theoretically. Just, this is again, it's a, it's a theoretical idea that there's more conflict the more genetically distant you are. Right. And we see that in cancer as well as in pregnancy. <clears throat> um, so apparently, this is from Pioneer. Voyager had the recording. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Wahadi. Thank uh, you for the fact checking. I'm sure you're correct. Yes. Because I have no idea. Because I, I was like, Voyager? Right. So and I think it's a gold plated disc also. It is a gold plated disc. Right. Yes, 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 yes. Um, Cell yeah. Three cells. yeah, here we go. Take home mm -hmm. message from, from the interbirth interval thing mm -hmm. from Mysteriously. So the more sex you have, the more babies you get, but the more babies you get, the less sex you have. <laughs> Which I, I think, think that's probably, probably pretty true. Yeah, kind of <laughs> goes along with what we might expect. Yeah. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Would you, would you mm -hmm. say it is fair to characterize cancer cells as the selfish, greedy ones? They're, they're, yeah. They're, not, they're, they're no longer pulling for the team. They're doing their own no, thing. No, yeah, yeah. And they're and like, they're you know, just I'm just going like to go ahead and reproduce and, going, and do my little biological thing. Going crazy with their, with yeah. their mutation and, and yeah. splitting and all of that. So it's, Mitosis. it's selection at the somatic cell level. Right. That they're very successful. They're able to make many copies yeah, of themselves. Yeah, right. Mitosis what, on steroids. That's what we're all about. But unfortunately, that, that success is short-lived, and it ends with the death of the organism, right? So it's, a, it's kind of a short-term natural selective benefit. Right. On the part of the cell. The cell based. But it doesn't benefit the long term, right. the germ cell part, which is what we're talking about with pregnancy. No no foresight or forethought in those cancer cells, certainly. There's no foresight, but of course, cells yes. don't really have foresight. No, they do not. <laughs> Unless you're a Tasmanian facial tumor cell, which I think maybe we did talk about. Mm. Did we talk about facial? I don't think so. No. Do we have to like go do a deep dive into cancer also? I think we should, actually. Okay, if we do yeah, do that, yeah. we'll bring on a special guest. Yeah, we totally know, should have a cancer some, episode. I know some cancer people. Yeah. We should totally do me. that. I, I actually have a store of sort of medicine-related papers and, and things that have come out that I was planning on doing episodes of Science Happy Hour mm -hmm. with those topics, but we could just do them on here where there's like really cool new stuff um, coming out. I've got some so, neuroscience stuff, so if you know any neuro people to bring on, that would be cool. Mm -hmm. Um, some cancer, some diabetes stuff. I do um, have an idea for maybe the next episode of this. Of this. Oh. Should we just share it on? Sure. On the stream. Yeah. All right. So it's so human superpowers. Ooh. All that's right, very so well is, timed with the with the premiere of Avengers: Infinity War. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it has to do with evolution. It has to be very anthropological. Okay. So, but but human human superpowers. There you go. And the reason I have this idea is that there is a paper. The first author is Michelle Ilardo. This is published in Cell. It was written up Ooh. in the New York Times. It was also on Sci-Fi on Science Friday. Oh, nice. With Ira Flato. Yes. Um, it was a good, good little episode. The, the more boring version of Science Happy Hour. Exactly. I'll say. Yeah, there's no, no beer or wine involved as no. far as I can tell. Mm -mm. Yeah, this mm -mm. is a terrible omission. Um, yeah, like, yeah. Wow, yeah missed wow. opportunity, clearly. Missed opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> so, but she studies the Bajau, and the Bajau are sea nomads. And the sea nomads... Um, they dive, and they have dived for many thousands of years in uh, Southeast Asia. So like Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia, uh, and they live on boats, and they, they never, well, they don't spend much time on land at all. So, wow. but they, it turns out these guys have Do they all special have super, superpowers that allow them to dive deep. They probably get enough uh, coconuts. Oh, I saw this. Yeah. I saw this. Yes. Okay. Yep. So I think that we can, we'll do about. human superpowers. 
and we can talk about that. We can do that as a as science happy hour or or an yeah, that's a great one. The great thing from my perspective is that she wrote this up, and then she talks about this phenomenon that allows the bejao to, to dive really deep mm -hmm. and successfully, and she puts it in terms of uh, you know, drowning and medical illness and things that are near and dear to my heart as an emergency doctor, things that can kill you. And then right. yeah, she ties it all together, puts a medical bow on Sweet. it, a little bit of evolution bow on it, um, in terms of superpowers. I love bows. I love so, a good bow. So. <laughs> and there are other superpowers, too, like being able to live at high altitude. So we could talk about several of these things. Yeah. I Actually, so now this is giving me a great idea. I think we need to do an adaptation episode of Science mm -hmm. Happy Hour. We can talk about this. We can talk about high altitude adaptations. We've kind of touched on that here. A little bit. Um, but we could do like a whole like actual adaptation. We can episode. think about it. All yeah. the, so this, this gets into kind of a sticky territory. Sure. Which is we're talking about human populations that are genetically a little bit distinct. Right. Um, it is it's interesting and cool and amazing <clears throat> because these are superpowers that people have. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, them. it's it's kind of similar. You could say that that high altitude adaptations are are similar to a superpower too, because it's right. allowing them to breathe in very low oxygen environments. Yeah, I think we so. should get some popcorn for a, a long tangent. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think this deserves a whole episode <laughs> for sure. All right, let's, let's let's bring it back to pirates at high elevations. Mm -hmm. Yes, the the cross section between sea nomads and and mutants. <laughs> totally. Yes, I like it. Uh, can we talk about the island where mammoths and Thank ancient prehumans lived alone until recently? I am not familiar with that. Now I need to go on my own tangent, I think, or deep dive. Uh, is it Wrangell Island? <clears throat> uh, yeah, that actually does I think, yeah, there feel was vaguely a familiar. Arctic island in which they found mammoth bones that are only about 4,000 or 3,000 years old. Wow. Or, yeah. Dang. That's for the most recent um, coexistence of, of course, the mammoths lived there because they hadn't been discovered by humans. Right. But maybe there's a different island. We tend to kill things, unfortunately. Dang. Yeah, we should totally look that up. Yeah, Do what is mooch? <laughs> I like my popcorn kind of just popcorny. Yeah. Maybe a little butter. I Oh, nutritional yeast. I actually have nutritional yeast right now because I'm about to make some I'm not, I'm not vegan a big fan of that. My wife loves that. It's, you know, she likes the yeasty thing. So it's on the popcorn. It is really um it's really commonly used as like a thing to promote like a cheesy flavor in non-dairy cheese alternatives. I think it's okay. It's I've just, never it's, just not, it's not my thing. Got it. I yeah. never I've never like people love it and That's I've just true. never like understood the love. Like yeah. it's fine. But but I'm actually planning we're we're going to make lasagna tomorrow. Uh, like a vegan lasagna. That, well, not vegan. Dairy-free lasagna because we're meat eaters, but no. I just can't have dairy. <laughs> um, so not truly vegan. Um, but uh, but I'm going to make a, a, a vegan ricotta uh, to put in it as well as a bunch of other mozzarella stuff that I have. Uh, and it's almonds, but you put uh, you basically just like puree hmm. it and then put nutritional yeast in a bunch well, maybe, of maybe I'll in Maybe it. I'll try the nooch again. I'll yeah. give it a fresh I mean, it's, it's, it just adds like a cheesy flavor kind of thing. Yeah, it's not so. bad. I just, no. like, I just like salt and butter on my yeah, popcorn. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of like soy school. sauce and sriracha on popcorn. What? What the what? Oh, yeah. That sounds pretty awesome. It's really good. Just like right. just a sprinkle, <laughs> sprinkle, and then a, a squirt of the sriracha, and you mix it up. It's very good. Uh, mm. Cravings. 
I know. I'm getting hungry now. Um, it's a good topic for a pregnancy <clears throat> presentation. I know, right? right. Totally. Uh, ooh, curry powder and butter. Yes, I've had curry popcorn before. That shit's delicious. Mm -hmm. Okay, placenta. So we talked about parasites. How delicious. So this guy, E.W. <laughs> Page of 1939, uh, physician, he's an obstetrician. He describes the placenta as, quote, a ruthless parasitic organ existing solely for the maintenance and protection of the fetus, perhaps too often to the disregard, disregard <laughs> of the maternal organism. Them's fighting words. E.G. mom. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's very poetic. Yeah. This sure. is this is hey, something that, that David Haig included in one of his papers. Yeah, that's pretty funny. That's a great quote. It is great quote. So it kind of sets the stage is that this is not a purely cooperative, beneficial arrangement. That there is conflict. In fact, there is warfare going on. Yeah, for sure. At the cell level. It looks like a weird circular lung. In this. Did picture. we talk about cannibalism last time? No. No? Mm -mm. That came up in conversation recently. Like of placenta eating after pregnancy? Cannibalism is eating humans. Yeah. If the placenta is human, yeah. it's not chimpanzee or something else. I think the logic is sound. So yeah. if you eat placenta, you are a cannibal. So <laughs> what I don't put any stock in, like all the like stuff that people talk about, about the benefits of eating placenta and all of that, but like why? I, I just don't... Why would anyone want to do that? Do we have any evidence of people doing that in, like, indigenous populations or... I, so what I read or heard, so I'm going way out on a limb here, is that... Could have sworn we talked about this. It must have been a very sim I, yeah, a similar kind of conversation. Maybe I missed it. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> is that uh, hum in most... Human populations don't eat the placenta, but placenta, okay. placenta eating in other mammals is extremely common. It is. It's got iron. Ah. It's got protein in it. Why wouldn't mom want to consume that placenta? Sure. And basically, convert it into milk. Right. right? Re, and then milk gets, re up all goes that, off, off to all the those baby. nutrients. I mean, right. you've been you've been putting all this all these resources into it for however mm -hmm. long, depending on what species you are. Right. And why wouldn't you want to like kind of re uptake those? Mm -hmm. Those resources, I guess. Placenta oh, cooking no. stream. Oh no! Is there one? <laughs> probably no, is, I right? hope not. <laughs> this is something that people do. If anyone would do it, it's Mike's eye. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, can we please not? I agree. Mm -mm. So yeah. So meanwhile, during <clears throat> pregnancy, the, the placenta is the cause of problems. Yeah. So we talked about the molar pregnancy, where that's where the pregnancy <clears throat> is completely abnormal. There's no fetus. Uh, in a molar pregnancy, basically, placenta the, only. You get all placenta and if I understand correctly, the placenta is derived entirely from dad's genes in, really? in a normal pregnancy. All right, so interesting. I'm not 100% sure that's true in all cases, but I think it's more likely to be true. And so, if you think about it, then that molar pregnancy is very dangerous for mom. It's going to want to suck out all wow. kinds of resources. So, if you have a molar pregnancy where the, where the placenta is enormous, you got excess copies of, of dad's genes floating around, then that's going to want to suck more resources from mom. In fact, that's what you see. The blood pressure goes sky wow. high when there's a molar pregnancy. They get way more preeclampsia. And that's the way of understanding it, that the parasiticness of the, of the placenta is far worse <coughs> during a molar pregnancy. So, yeah, it's bad news. That's, wow, that's crazy. Oh. You want a little refill? Thank you. Thank you. Oh, is it? I might have a little more. I'm a little... Here, I'm going to... Gracias. 
There we go. <laughs> now I can do a little more. Just a wee, wee, wee nip. That's good. That's too much. Too much. Thank you. <laughs> I may have Googled canned placenta. Don't oh. don't Google canned placenta. Right. That's gotta be that's gotta be illegal. <laughs> oh god. Oh, that's so horrible. Let's, let's see what we have next. <clears throat> let's move on. Let's move on from placenta. I believe it. We'll come that back to the placenta. That is really interesting though, about the fact that at least maybe mm -hmm. a percentage of them are are mostly dad's genes in the placenta. Right. That's crazy. Well, hey, I'm on record as <clears throat> as that. That gold disc. Right. I was wrong about that. So yeah, yeah, wrong yeah, about too. I mean, hey, uh, yeah. I this is a conversation. People make mistakes. It's fine. Mm -hmm. It's fine. But the cool as long thing as we're is we're not right, peddling pseudoscience. I'm happy. <laughs> I think we're being scientific. I think here. we're doing pretty good. Spiral arteries are a thing. Okay. So mom in the uterus uh, produces these highly tortuous is the medical word, but very spirally oh, right. looking tortuous. arteries. They're not straight. Think about it. If you want to deliver something to, to a tissue, the best way to do that is a straight line. Make a, make a pipe which just goes in a straight line. In the uterus, it's the opposite. Weird. The uterus has this crazy spirally um, configuration. And basic physics, I'm not, a phys I'm not a physicist, I'm a physician, but basic physics says that the longer you make the, the hose, yeah. the more resistance you get. Yeah, All for right? sure. So what do you think the placenta does when the placenta starts to, to, to invade these arteries because this is part of normal pregnancy. Normal pregnancy involves the invasion of the spiral arteries by fetal trophoblasts. So these are fetal cells that are in there remodeling the arteries. They try to make this spirally crazy tortuous mm -hmm. arrangement into a big broad pipe. They make so it, yeah, I was going to say like they make it straight. you want to make the transfer of resources aka glucose as easily as easy as possible. Yeah. So you essentially do like a you know you want the fastest internet cable right. <laughs> to get to the placenta but this is evidence of a tug of war mom right. again wants not consciously they want the spiral mom wants the spirals right. they want high resistance fetus wants the big broad pipe they want the broadband they want as much resource information yeah, packets yeah. Right. to be going in as as, as rapidly Whereas as possible Whereas mom's like i'm okay with dsl oh dsl or <laughs> yeah or worse yeah right worse? dial up Right. <laughs> Dial up exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great way of, of uh, thinking about that. But this this happens in normal pregnancy. And in fact, if, if the baby can't remodel the spiral arteries, then a likely thing that happens is the baby ends up having intrauterine growth retardation. Ooh. So the baby ends up being small. Um, and in that situation, oh, wow. then the fetus really gets, again, not consciously, but really tries to deliver resources to, to the placenta. And it does that by increasing the blood pressure. So it's a feature of inadequate remodeling of the spiral arteries that the fetus doesn't get what it quote-unquote wants. Sure. But that actually is a risk factor for preeclampsia. Oh, wow. And preeclampsia is where the pressure goes up. So you're trying to get as much pressure even through the spiral so arteries. So you're not getting the big, the big straightforward pipe that you want, so you're going to try and increase pressure to maybe try and counteract yeah. some of that. So this is there's it's like mechanical back and forth. It's crazy. physics stuff going on here, where we can just look at this, the, the placenta and the remodeling of the arteries yeah. as being a uh, a filter in which resources get traveled from mom to baby. That can happen by just making big broad pipes. It can happen by increasing pressure on the part of mom's circulation. Mm -hmm. All right, 
Um, or you can think that you could actually just get, get more resources by perhaps increasing mom's blood sugar. All right? So all these Ooh. things happen. These things happen. So gestational diabetes. Yeah. We, didn't, we didn't actually talk about gestational diabetes Oh, but we're yet. about to. Yes. All right? Okay. But the, the pressure stuff, is this is real. So and the, that, that parasitic, ruthless organism of the placenta is trying to extract as much resources from mom as it can, and it does that by remodeling these, these arteries. What a parasite. And if it doesn't get, get that, then it just cranks up the blood pressure. So the parasite is responsible for the blood pressure of preeclampsia. How do we know this? You don't even need to be an evolutionary biologist to know this. We know this because if you deliver the placenta and just remove it, then the preeclampsia tends to go away. Mm. Preeclampsia is a disease of the placenta, that wow. ruthless parasitic organ. Craziness. Yeah. Craziness. That's right. I just can't believe that obstetricians aren't learning this in their residency programs. I know. I mean, like, these like, are things that... I mean, I didn't know about the molar pregnancy, but I, I'm familiar with ectopic, I'm familiar with preeclampsia, I'm familiar with gestational diabetes. Like, mm -hmm. these are just things that I've picked up probably just as a woman, maybe, um, or maybe from the fact that my mom's a nurse. But, like, I feel like there are... I didn't necessarily, before I took your class, before this conversation, I didn't necessarily know about the sort of evolutionary basis for these things or at least the, the foundation that, that makes right. these things an evolutionary thing. Um, and it's, it, it's like, I, I feel like it's a concept that people know about. It seems not that difficult to add a little evolution tag onto it when that, that information is communicated. Right. You know what I mean? And for people like you and me, you add that evolution tag, <clears throat> it's like turning a light bulb on. It's like, ding! Right. Like, I wouldn't be talking about this. It wouldn't, <laughs> it's so much more interesting when there's this evolutionary component. So for me, yeah, for this sure, right. really helps me learn it. And so what I've always thought oh, was totally. that if you could teach this in, in an evolutionary point of view, the students would learn it so much better. Yeah. I, I truly believe that. I just think that if you can add an evolutionary perspective to pretty much anything, it feels like it carries a little bit more weight. It's like adding a little bit of nutritional yeast to your popcorn. That's right. Look at that. I don't even like that. Bringing it back. <laughs> Evolutionary nooch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've never heard it called nooch, but like that's totally in my lexicon I like that. now. <laughs> For sure. Uh, uh, but yeah, I, I just feel like when you think about how what we are seeing today actually relates to our evolutionary history as a species, that makes it more interesting, yeah. at least to me. But I do think that Asteriously is correct that uh, Kate knows a few things about a few things, and that is because she is a PhD candidate. Yeah, that's fair, but almost a PhD. I, but honestly, I I would, I would guess that I've gotten most of my like clinical knowledge outside of that. I would say it's right. probably my mom's fault. I I would give most of that credit to my mom. I think. All right. So here's to moms. Yes, that's right. To moms to and, mom their and their spiral arteries dealing with with uh with parasitic placentas. That's right. So. For all of us, for for mm -hmm. the benefit of us. That's right. <laughs> We all got through this whole process. I know, yeah. Kind of crazy. It's just, I, I think it's super interesting because we are all the product of the balance that was won in the tug of war of every pregnancy. Yeah. You know, like there is a balance there and hopefully that balance puts forth mm -hmm. a, a healthy baby. That's a good way to look at it. I, and the point is that if we didn't have the two sides pushing or pulling against each other, right. you wouldn't have a healthy pregnancy. If, if one side wins this tug of war, then you end up with either miscarriage or mom dying, which right. in, in either case... Neither, yeah, yeah, neither of those are good outcomes. Right. Is good, a good outcome. 
Um, medical question. All right. Medical answer. I'm ready. I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're Where typing are the at cookies? the moment. <laughs> uh, Is that the medical question? Yeah, right. Where are the cookies? <laughs> oh, where are the cockles? <laughs> Is that what it says? Yes. From here, it looks like cookies. <laughs> it does totally look like cookies. Warms the cockles? I don't even know where that phrase yeah. comes from. But that's testes, right? Yeah? Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Cockles? I think so. You say I mean, so. <laughs> warming the cockles feels like a thing that has to do with testes. <laughs> I don't know. I think we should move on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hearts don't have cockles, apparently. <laughs> uh, okay, let's move on. <laughs> All right, so from spiral arteries to the tug of war. I guess we've kind of already covered this. Yeah, we have. Really, really the, lovely stock image the, of a tug of war. <laughs> wouldn't it be nice to have, we could, we could just do our own and like take a photo of it. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. There you go, we gotta <laughs> okay. give credit where credit is due. Uh, maternal genes. Have we? I guess we've. We've kinda, done this. We've sort of done we've this. We've done this. All right. Yep. So maternal we'll, we'll favors. Baby and an egg. Small baby in general. Small baby. Uh, so all the imprinted gene effects, and there's there's more than just that IGFR. There's a lot of imprinted gene effects. They all tend to favor smaller babies, whereas the paternal genes, which is the next slide, oh. shows a big baby. Nope. All right. Not next so slide. All, yeah, right. this next one. You, 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 oh, that okay. one oh, there we go. The okay. Patern, if you inherit the, oh. the dream genes from the baby, is that a like a sculpture? You know, I wish I knew the artist. That's. Oops, I, I want to say like Damien Hirst or something like that. Uh, with this enormous, enormous baby. Horrifying. It does like this enormous newborn. It's it's clearly one of those newborns that looks like an old man. Mm-hmm. Because that's I'm definitely a thing. Not very attractive. Yeah. So yeah, so things that favor big babies, and that, that, that those things are the increase in the blood pressure, they are the increase in the blood sugar, because we haven't really talked about that. Right. So gestational diabetes. Yes. It's a thing. Uh, we diagnose it in, I think it's 10% of pregnancies. Oh, it's wow. pretty high. That's high, yeah. But having insulin resistance, there's a word for this, or glucose glucose intolerance during pregnancy, yes, right. where people aren't diabetic. Their blood sugars aren't through the roof, but you can you measure how well mom is able to take up blood sugar into her cells. The mom is, quote, quote unquote, impaired, all right? So that's this glucose intolerance. My sister-in-law had this when she, during her pregnancy. Oh, really? And she's perfectly healthy. She doesn't have diabetes. Right. Nothing wrong with her. So in fact, I think that that occurs in higher, more than 50%. People, uh, it's, it's, it's extremely common that people will get this glucose intolerance during pregnancy. That's crazy. So then when you think of something's that common, it affects normal people, then you have to ask the question, why? And we evolutionary biologists, people that want to apply evolution to medicine, we ask a lot of why questions. Yes. And the answer to that why question is, well, it's an adaptation on the part of those paternal, <laughs> paternally derived genes in the fetus. And Driving really, that growth. Yeah. Essentially, that those a blood a molecule of glucose that does not get sucked into mom cells is available to go across the placenta and into the baby and end up with a bigger baby. All right, so that's that's the way to look at it. So gestational diabetes is kind of the tip of the iceberg, where mom looks like she has diabetes. Mm. The diabetes goes away when she uh, when she delivers the placenta. All right, so the placenta is the key to all of this, and really, it's the paternally imprinted genes in the placenta that are responsible for these things. So there's a bit of craziness. 
It so, is a bit of craziness. A big bit of craziness. What's with the miniature man next to the normal-sized baby? <laughs> well, I took this photo off of the interwebs. I can't give that. I can't attribute it. It's true. The, uh, we can't technically tell. Is this a, a normal baby and a tiny man or a or... normal man and a giant baby? It's true. <laughs> Bye, hysteriously. Thanks for hanging out. Um, <laughs> that's pretty funny. And, and he is sitting in a very strategic spot. True. Yep. Yep, yep. If it weren't for that strategic spot, I don't know that I could show this on Twitch. <laughs> yeah. Good point. <laughs> Why is his smile so big? <laughs> so I think I do have a breastfeeding photo. I, yeah, I hit yeah? that. You hit it? Yeah, I hit oh. it. Yeah, I was like, that can't be shown. <laughs> it, was a little, it was a little risque. Mm. I mean, not that breastfeeding should be sexualized, but like with the new TOS, I was not trying, you know, toe the line. It was definitely so. a photo of a boob. It was definitely a boob. Yeah. Yep. Technically, the nipple was not showing. Right. But it was just still. A, a boob. Yeah. But but yeah, I was like, I thought I thought better. <laughs> you know of what? It. <laughs> if you're curious about breastfeeding, you can Google the image. That's fair. Or just like go to your local coffee shop. You probably will see someone breastfeeding. Maybe. I hope so. <laughs> so, we actually have a in our department we have a a like lactation room now. It's just a bathroom that also doubles as a lactation room mm -hmm. for doing your lactation business yep it I, makes sense i will not add anything to that right. that's all um okay cool moving on from giant babies Ooh, multi-parity so this is, this is kind of cool stuff so you know when people don't really understand what causes things they talk about risk factors so for instance we know now that malaria is caused by a mosquito that right. trans transmits uh, falciparum or plasmodium falciparum. Yes, a vector. Which is the uh, protozoan that causes malaria. So we know that now. <clears throat> but back in the day, malaria, the word malaria comes from mal, meaning bad, and air, being air. Bad so, air. Bad air. So I thought it was a miasma or like bad air coming up from swamps that actually caused malaria. They didn't Crazy. understand that it was a parasite. And so the, the bad air was the risk factor. So we, we, and we, in similar ways, we can think about, um, say, heart disease. We talk about risk factors, smoking, high blood pressure, various things. We don't really understand right. exactly what causes heart disease. But the same is true for eclampsia. And when I took my OB rotation back in the day, there was no, the, the, the causation of eclampsia was not understood. And I'm like, dude, it's this, it's this evolutionary reason. We understand this. And in fact, there's a, there are factors produced by the placenta that damage the mom's blood vessels and cause the blood pressure to go up and cause this eclampsia to, to right. occur. This is an evolutionary question. So here's an area where I think that having an evolutionary perspective can help us understand the mechanism of the disease. Which is more of a how question as opposed to a why question, the mechanism That's part right. of it. Yeah. But meanwhile, we're talking about risk factors. So we know that multiparity, if you have lots of pregnancies, mm -hmm. it actually reduces your risk. You have less, less pregnancy mm. or eclampsia. Interesting. If you have a first-time pregnancy, you have a much higher risk of eclampsia. How about birth control? Well, well, we'll get to it. Okay. Yeah. I'll put a pin in that one. Put a pin in that one. So people say, well, gosh, okay, we know that, that older mothers who tend to have more babies tend to have less preeclampsia. It's really the younger mothers, the healthy mothers, that have the biggest problems. And we didn't understand exactly why this why this occurred. But evolution can tell us something about this. 
and tell us also something about why it is when you'd expect more cooperation between dad and mom. So let's take a look at the next slide. Okay. See if it's what I remember it to be. Just, oh, just before we do that, mm -hmm. nulliparous means you have never had a kid. Just FYI. You don't know what nulliparous means? There's, yeah, there's multiparous yeah. and nulliparous. I would say the average person right. probably does not know what nulliparous means. So paris or parody <laughs> right. is probably, someone look it up, Latin for yeah, pregnancy? Yeah, it's got to be. Could be Greek. Let's, all know. right, let's Google let's, machine. Let's check it out. The Google machine, let's so do it. So nulliparous or nulliparous means that you've never been pregnant. Or it's your first, it's, it's the first... The first pregnancy. Latin for producing or bring forth or bearing. 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 Latin. There it is. All right. So you, actually, so you can be nulliparous and be pregnant. Yep. All right. So the parody means you've actually delivered a baby. Right. So if you're nulliparous, you it means you've, not, you've never been pregnant or and you're pregnant for the first time. Right. And that's a risk factor for uh, being preeclamptic. Non-porous women. <laughs> <laughs> I love it's, it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a biological porosity. That's a bone thing. So, yeah. So now we know, though, that it's the, essentially the, the mechanism by this is that moms or women tend to recognize by this immune mechanism mm -hmm. proteins that are in dad's sperm. Right. right. If it's brand new sperm that she's never been exposed to before, <clears throat> then there's a greater chance for conflict. Yep. All right. I so have the, heard this before. The interests are not going to be perfectly aligned and... If you think about it, um, that first time pregnancy, mom is going to be more interested in withholding resources for future pregnancies. So this is an, a reason why first time pregnancies have a higher risk of having a either premature birth or a birth that acts is smaller for gestational age, so a low birth weight baby. We see this with, with very young first time pregnancies. Right. We see it less with, with people women that have had multiple pregnancies. And it's, it's because... Presumably, if it's the same father every time, because you've had additional mm -hmm. exposure to the sperm, potentially. Well, that's that's the reason that's for the, the eclampsia. Oh, there's, okay. there's, two, two, there's two things going on here. So one is that for if you think about again, biologists think about a reproductive career, which makes it sound kind of awful. Yeah, right. All right. But if you think about a woman's reproductive career, all the all the pregnancies that she's going to have over her lifetime, that the very first one. She's going to want to retain some of her resources for future pregnancies. Right. She's not going to want to give it all up for the for the one pregnancy. For sure. All right. Yep. In terms of her delivering resources, she's going to hold back more. So this is why we see more reproductive conflict or genetic conflict, more preeclampsia. But the other thing is that she's unlikely to be in a stable long-term relationship. And from from the father's point of view and the paternal genes, that the father might want to take more resources out of mom if there's no chance that that he or his mm -hmm. genes are going to have babies in the future with that same woman. Right. All right. So you might expect that a one night stand is going to be more risky when it comes to preeclampsia mm -hmm. or these genetic diseases of, of genetic conflict. Mm. And it turns out that that is true. Interesting. That the so one night stand is particularly dangerous. Pregnancies that result from one night stands, yes. we actually see this. We see more preeclampsia. No shit. No shit. The mechanism wow. has to do with exposure to male proteins in the sperm. That mom, that is pretty mom over time actually recognizes the engine and says, oh yeah, I recognize the sperm. That's the guy I've been with for a while. No big deal. He's going to stick around for a while. He's actually going to take care of the babies. He might be around for the next baby. So I'm not going to put up, That's quite, crazy. I'm not gonna put up quite so much of a fight in terms of delivering resources in this pregnancy. Wow. All right? And from the father's perspective, 
You know, you think, again, I'm just completely going way out on the limb that here kind in of terms of anthropomorphizing what's going on. Sure. And imagining there's there's agency and consciousness. Right. None of this is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you might imagine, though, that from the father's perspective, if there is a truly monogamous relationship and more babies are in the future, mm -hmm. that, yeah, we don't want to kill mom in this one pregnancy just to get a few more resources. We're not going to ask quite so much. The ask is going to be a little bit reduced. Right. All right. This is my own personal perspective on how this works, but it comports with the evidence that if mothers have been exposed to antigens from dad's sperm over a long period of time, there's less conflict and we see right. less disease. It's a fact. I have heard that you can actually have essentially an allergic reaction to sperm. Well, that's one way of looking at it. All right. So let's imagine a monogamous relationship in which dad or the, the, the future dad mm -hmm. has been wearing a condom for eight months or a year and then right. takes off the condom for that effort to get pregnant. Yep. Um, then that, it's essentially, biologically speaking, in terms of these antigens, it's essentially a one-night stand at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. All right? So, yeah, mom's immune system is kind of freaking out, going, hey, I need to withhold some resources here. Right. And <laughs> there's more, <laughs> you see more preeclampsia in condom that use. That is so crazy. All right? So, bottom line, if you want to avoid having preeclampsia, don't use barrier means of contraception if you're in a long-term monogamous relationship. There you go. All right. Now, there's good reasons to use barrier contraception to prevent STDs, etc. But if you're in a long-term committed relationship, it might be a good idea if you want to avoid preeclampsia. So here's the free medical advice. Yep. No medical advice is implied here. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but yeah, avoid the condoms. Condoms increase your risk for preeclampsia. And it makes sense because we know something about the mechanism. It also makes sense if we know something about the evolution. <laughs> Mike size says, as a man, I find this to be great news. <laughs> well, hopefully, Mike size, you are in a committed long-term relationship. That's what we're talking about here. <laughs> I mean, frankly, probably most women would find that to be great news as well. You know, it's not, not a one-sided issue. <laughs> um, so there you go. Okay. This well, there all, you go. Th these are, are pretty well-validated findings. So back to my original question about birth control, since we're on the topic now. Mm -hmm. How about hormonal birth control that, if it, at least if it has estrogen in it, it is essentially mimicking a pregnancy uh, in your body? So your body kind of thinks you're already pregnant, and therefore you're not you're not ovulating. That's how some of the hormonal stuff works, right? Mm -hmm. So like, what does that mean for preeclampsia risk if your body thinks you've had a pregnancy a pregnancy over and over and over and over again? So we would predict, based on what we've talked right here, that if you had a first-time pregnancy but you were on the pill, that you might have a lower risk of preeclampsia. Okay, so like say you you've, been on the pill. you've been on the pill for like 10 years or something like a lot of women have. And then you, you go off of it, you get pregnant, then theoretically you would have had maybe the equi equivalent. If you've been on it continuously, mm -hmm. does your body treat that as like one pregnancy? And so your risk of preeclampsia subsequently is like equivalent to someone who has had one previous pregnancy? So I don't know, completely off the cuff, I, I, would, I would hypothesize that being on the pill would reduce one's risk for preeclampsia. Yeah. I don't know the answer. Right, right? like this is just this is, totally we're, theoretical here. We're just here. spitballing yeah, here yeah. But that's what I would predict. I'm not sure if there's good, <clears throat> good data on that. There might be. 
So we'll I mean, I, I find... We'll look it up for next time. Yeah, for sure. Like, hormonal birth control is actually really fascinating because it is mimicking a pregnancy, and we don't mm. really know enough about how a female body reacts to that. So, like, there's a whole bunch of work that talks about um, reduced mm. or even increased risk for breast cancer or ovarian cancer, et cetera, et cetera, um, in women who have been on the pill for certain periods of time. Um, hormonal specifically um, and estrogen specifically too um, so like but there's it, this is one of those areas where the trope of more research is needed is actually like ridiculously true but it's also it's also an area in which having an evolutionary perspective will lead you to oh absolutely absolutely right? yeah so what I, so independent of the male reproductive proteins of women's age or that melaparity so the first pregnancy, they will have higher preeclampsia. And the way to understand that is that, that the maternal organism, what's happening in the uterus, right. is there's less delivery of resources to the, to the fetus. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the fetus is trying extra hard, trying, to increase blood pressure and resource delivery. Uh, but it is also true that, uh, so we see, more, we see more, more preeclampsia in first pregnancies because mom has many more pregnancies in general mm -hmm. in her future, all right? So there's more conflict. There's more conflict of interest. Right. Where there's less of a conflict of interest, there's less preeclampsia. So we see less preeclampsia as mom gets older, and we see less preeclampsia as mom has had more exposure to, to dad's uh, sperm <laughs> over time. Yeah. Which is just absolutely crazy. It is, that is really crazy. And, and I'm sure every yeah. man in the audience is very happy about this. I'm but you know, sure. yeah, it's really interesting stuff. But you can also make predictions based just about birth weight. Based on all stuff oh too. yeah, for the sure. First Which then are, birth weight is a huge predictor for so many other things. Mm -hmm. Firstborns tend to be smaller than subsequentborns, right? And that's because mom is withholding more resources, at least in theory. Mm -hmm. All right, predicted by evolutionary theory. Quantity versus quality, right. sort of thing. So my I was born at seven and a half pounds. My brother, who was born three years later, was a ten pound baby. Dang, that's a big baby. Yep, big old baby. But even third and fourth. Uh, Fourthborn, we see a trend towards increased body. Really? So, like, size. even yeah. it doesn't, there's no like diminishing returns? I mean, at some point, mom gets old, right? Right. And then with and, age. And there's you get, also balancing selection going on with the size of the yeah. baby because it can be dangerous with weak babies. So, you have to, there's the increased likelihood that mom might get sick right. or get an infection, you know, causing other problems. Kind of cool. Yeah. All right. How many, so just curious here. Um, you know your birth weight. Mm -hmm. I do not know my birth weight. Okay. I know I was your not. Mom's a nurse. I yeah, I know, right? I also don't know my blood type. Like this is a it's an issue. Or positive. <laughs> I know I'm Rh positive. But you know it doesn't make a difference because even if you said I'm an A negative blood type, right? They're gonna test you in the hospital. Yeah, like it's. They're fine. not gonna believe it's you. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Right. But like, so I don't know. I don't know my blood type. I don't know my birth weight. I know I was not low birth weight, but I don't know what it actually was. How many of you guys watching know your birth weight or know that you, if you were low birth weight or not? I think the majority of people do. Really? So I have data to show that what? like probably okay. 40 to 50% of, at least of the people that I have sampled. That could be the third time no. I was wrong on this, uh, on the stream because <laughs> she has data. <laughs> I got nothing. I, I mean, this is something that I'm, I'm trying to look at actually because I have... Part of my dissertation research will look at birth weight and how it may predict various things. 
I mean, that's there's like eight zillion studies that do that, but that is one component of what I'm doing. And in order to do that, I have to ask people what their birth weight is. So I have a couple of different questions where I ask, do you know your birth weight? If so, put it down. If not, it's, you know, left blank. Uh, and then I also ask, do you know it or are you estimating? So there's like a secondary question. I know I'm seven pounds something. I don't yeah. know the number of So assets. there you go. So yeah. like you would be an estimate. Right. An you estimate. know? So it's like at the very least, that secondary question gives me some idea of the confidence that people have in okay. whatever their answers are. And like it is actually a relatively small percentage of people who know. Hmm. Or they're like, because these these came out of interviews that I've done. Um, well, it's not a particularly useful like, oh, piece I can of ask information, my mom, right? In, you know? in day to day life, right? Like when yeah, you're yeah. trying to pay your bills or <clears throat> you know do your job, your birth weight doesn't doesn't enter right. Into it. Yeah, for From sure. An evolutionary perspective, it's very important. It's super important. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned that birth weight it predicts yeah how likely you are to get sick as an infant. Mm -hmm. In terms, it actually predicts how likely predicts you are to obesity. Yeah, all these illnesses. all kinds of like degenerative disease of aging, all kinds of stuff. So it's super important. So of course, oh, yeah. you know, this could be something that baby and mom are going to fight over, right? Because mm -hmm. for baby survival, had being a little bit more than adequate yeah. average birth weight is probably going to be a good thing. <laughs> so we've got a, a few here. So 9.5 pounds from serpent, firstborn, giants we are. Giants indeed. <laughs> so subsequent babies, bigger than that? Dang. Um, we've got a medium-sized baby, an estimate from Hosebeats. Um, let's see. So somewhere between 9 and 10, serpent saying. Oh, um, neg. Yeah, we got an own egg in there. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's that's the universal donor, right? Yeah. Yeah. But also O positive can be a universal donor. Oh, okay, donor. sure. Um, let's see. Mm -hmm. uh, no idea. We've got a no idea. I'm not even sure what my phone number is. <laughs> hmm. um, no, I, another no idea. Then a very creative answer of I weighed more than a leaf, but less than a giraffe. That's probably true. A fetal giraffe. Does it Sorry. matter? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. I mean, it's true either way. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I, I honestly wonder because it, it is incredibly important, but it's not something that it, like you just happen to know it, right? Like it's, but like you should all go ask your moms uh, or dads what your birth weight is, just just out of right. curiosity. So I think that mothers, from what I understand, are actually pretty good. At remembering yes. the birth oh, of yeah. babies. Especially now, too, because yeah. I feel like it's it's probably a little easier for more recent mm -hmm. generations to know because, like, there's probably a Facebook post probably. with it on there. Yeah. You know? Every detail of your, of your early right? life. Right? Yeah, like your buttocks at, like, different intervals of your development, probably. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> All of your, the embarrassment yeah. for your for a lifetime. <laughs> um. But but yeah, just just a, a curious thing because that is something that is it, I've had to go back and then create a protocol that allows us to actually go ask parents as mm -hmm. well. Right. So. But so yeah. listen, I I've made the argument though that if you share fifty percent of your genes with another organism, right, so a, a first degree relative in this case, mom and baby, that there's going to be some conflict between mom and baby as a result of, the, of that mm -hmm. lack of genetic relatedness. Right. And we're going to see more conflict between the genes that are not shared, the ones that come from dad, 
than the ones that come from mom. Mm -hmm. So we can make a prediction though about what about uh, surrogacy? So Ooh. when yes, good you know, question. I think there's some examples of this, but people in the news. But women, celebrities. There's been some celebrities recently. But yeah, so if, when you're a surrogate, if you if you are not your own egg donor, right? Right. That there's somebody else's egg, somebody else's sperm. Then you have a situation when, in which 100% of those genes don't agree with mom. Yeah. Right? So then you have to think, well, gosh, what's going to be the likelihood that we're going to see problems related to these genetic conflicts of pregnancy? Yeah. And the reality is that surrogacy is incredibly dangerous. Really? Yeah. You get way more uh, eclampsia, preeclampsia, way more gestational diabetes Dang. during surrogacy. I mean, it makes sense. no relatedness. Yeah. So this is an evolutionary idea. And the evolutionary idea says there is less cooperation when you are not related or you don't share genes with another organism. And in surrogacy, even though it's, it's a non-biologically, okay. we've not evolved to be surrogates ever, but no. the same insight applies. When, when, you, when you see no uh, relatedness, you actually get more conflict. I mean, that, that seems like a perfect data point yeah. or many, many data points for this Just, whole concept. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And this is listen. This is why just evolution, natural selection, thinking about these ideas is so powerful. Yeah. Because it allows you to make predictions that most often turn out to be true. Right. <laughs> if they turn out to be true, then other ideas that aren't you know they don't have any scientific validity. So that's this is why evolutionary biology is such a powerful idea. Absolutely. And it's why the obstetricians in my hospital where I work, they're losing out by not by not learning these things. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I mm -hmm. we're biased, of course, but yeah. I, I really do feel like we everyone should understand this stuff because it, I think it, like I was saying earlier, I think it makes certain things more interesting if you can learn them from an evolutionary perspective. And it just makes sense. And it's like, I'm not trying to, you know, start controversy or anything, but there are definitely, um, there are definitely people out there who don't believe in evolution, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's a sad thing. I don't know how to fix it, but yeah. Yeah, my, listen. My point of view and the thing that motivates me is that that these ideas are useful. Yes, they're useful in terms of their predictive value. So, just from a scientific perspective, they're useful in terms of being able to predict and do something about things that we care about, mm -hmm. like maternal mortality. We don't want women to die during pregnancy. No, right. We want children to survive uh, wanted pregnancies and these kinds of things. So these are these are outcomes that are important. For sure. That, that rely on an evolutionary understanding uh, that can make people better doctors and mm -hmm. can make us have better outcomes. Totally. And, and you know what, honestly, um, a lot of the clinical evolutionary stories that we can see, like things like antibiotic resistance or a lot mm. of these things that are affecting pregnancies, these are real life consequences that you can illustrate to someone to actually communicate things about evolution. Right. And I feel like those kinds of paradigms are what make people kind of shift their views a little bit because it's like when we're talking about evolution in terms of like human evolution and thinking back like oh did we come from monkeys or you know shit like that it's way more esoteric it kind of goes against some of our weird like egotistical like human first 
sort of or humans at the top sort of like way of thinking that a lot of people have and whereas if you can say to someone like you are more likely to get sick because of x y and z and it is based in evolution that is i feel like that's a that is a one potential bridge uh between people who who know evolution is true and people who say they don't believe in it mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah like the real world consequences can help us let's say that i agree okay well said yeah um thank you mm -hmm. uh did we have other slides that we wanted to I think we, we got stuck on yeah, condoms. We, there's one I... on egg donations. Oh, egg that, donation. Yeah. Okay. Is that the last one? Or? Yep. Okay. Oh, hey, there's the... Uh, there's a couple little ones. There's the egg donations. So the rate, rate of preeclampsia, 30%. <clears throat> so having an evolutionary perspective would say that being, an, 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 being a, a surrogate oh, with, oh. with egg donation is super dangerous. Mm. And that turns out to be the truth. The truth. Raid incoming. What? Where from? Where from? Do you tell. Let's find out. Well, let's let's keep going, but then we'll you know <laughs> yeah. see what's going on. Oh, let's, a horizon side raid! It looks like. Let's uh, check out the next slide. Okay. The next slide has to do with the, with this, this microcrimorism business. Horizon, thank you so much for that raid. We must defend the raid. All right. We must defend against. Thank you, thank you so much. How's it going, everybody? Um, do we need to? Should we talk about this stuff on this about particular? The raid? About the egg donation? Or we should, should we keep going? Let's keep going. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll keep going. So Amy, Image. Amy Body. Welcome, everyone. Who is this awesome researcher. She's at UC Santa Barbara. And she did her postdoctoral fellowship with uh, my colleague, uh, Athena Actipus, when she was at UC Santa Barbara. I'm sorry, UC oh, SF. I have looked yeah. at one of um, her papers recently yeah. on Science Happy Hour. Well, great. Yeah. I know that name. Actipus. She's yeah. yeah Athena Actipus is great. Um, uh, Amy Body is fantastic. So what Amy Body has shown is that we can see these same kind of conflicts that we're talking about. Genetic conflicts exist mm -hmm. between uh, in our own bodies that we are all micro chimerisms that right. we are or micro chimera. Chimeri. What's the, Little... what's the plural of chimera? Ooh. Chimeras. I guess it'd be it's like chimeras. Well, is it Latin? So, because if it's Latin, it would be A-E, right? Right. Chimerae or whatever. We can go with that. Let's Google. Google, right, Google machine. That. Keep going. So the bottom, so all of us, everybody listening to this, you have cells that are your own body, but you also have some cells from your mother that are embedded right. into your tissues. So they're in your muscle, they're in your brain, they're, without, they're throughout your body. So we know this from doing PCR on autopsies. And this is a very, very common finding in people uh, that we are at least a small percentage of us contain cells that are not ours. So, so this, these genetic conflicts that we're talking about, they're not just during pregnancy. They actually happen after pregnancy too. I think and this it's is, this is the work that, that uh, Amy Body is doing, which is just amazing and insane. Uh, Check out the next slide. Yes. <laughs> no, so this was uh, written up by Carl Zimmer. So he wrote this piece a couple of years ago oh, called yeah. A Pregnancy Souvenir Cells That Are Not Your Own. Um, Amy Body has also suggested that there might be even grandmother cells in your, bo in your no body. No way. Yeah. So not just your mom. You might actually have multi-generational cells. Double chimera? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Which is truly crazy to think about. I mean, it, to, be, to be fair, the whole chimera 
thing. It's a it's a bit of a it's like a sensationalized sort of thing, I suppose. Yeah, Dodgy, we're, thank we're, you for that we're talking about like probably single digit percentage. Like yeah, right. Most like, of your these cells are, like are actually very yours. small numbers of cells that it, like the true true meaning of a, of a chimera is is a little bit more intense than that, but it is technically true. Right. Um, that's why that's that's just the micro part. <clears throat> yeah, get them out. I know, right? It's kind of weird. But you're stuck with them and stuck yeah, with them forever. Right. And and essentially what we're talking about, especially for for all of you new people who just came in, um, is is the conflict between your own cells and those of a parent, depending on on if we're talking about mother offspring or or father offspring. Uh, conflict that that comes from the fact that you have sort of different vested interests coming from many sides. Yeah. So. So Amy has made her life's work trying to figure out if there are conflicts <coughs> of interest and what those might be. One area which is hypothesized is that fetal cells actually migrate to the breast. So the breast feeding slide was got deleted. Um, yes, I was <laughs> yeah. like, no boobs. Right. Mm -mm. So the idea is that, that too, the, too the baby actually has an interest in taking out more milk than mom wants to give up. So earlier we talked about how, uh, how babies disrupt parent, parental sleep, right. and that actually can prevent future pregnancies. We know the pregnancy actually kind of shuts off lactation. That's something that actually does happen. So the baby would have an interest in, pre in actually preventing a future pregnancy so that breastfeeding can, can actually persist. The fetal cells actually promote differentiation of the cells in the lactation glands that actually supposedly might make more milk. Oh man! So this micro chimera thing, the babe, so mom has this little leftover bit of the fetus in her breast, but also in other parts of her body. But in the breast, they actually promote differentiation of the of the of the milk glands. What? So this is hypothesis, people. Right? right? Yeah. Not. So this is not, not tested known yet. Fact. No, but there are fetal cells in the breast. That much is that's that's to be sure. And there's some thinking <clears throat> says that this is actually a good thing for mom, that having more differentiation of those cells is actually good for her. Right. Because if those cells remain undifferentiated, they're actually more likely to, to become breast cancer. Ah. Okay. Okay. So we do know that women that have never had children are actually at a higher risk for breast cancer than women that have multiple babies. Right. Part of the reason for this. Although I'm certainly not the only reason, because a lot of it has to do with hormone exposure, but a lot of it, but some of it might have to do with these microchimeric cells from the from fetal cells from previous pregnancies that have embedded Whoa. themselves in the mom's breast. That's insane. Truly nuts. That is really insane. But you know what? What's uh, this is a very plausible hypothesis. So far, there's no, there's nothing to say that this this, this hypothesis is not true. And sure. yeah, we need more research. Yeah, the trope continues. Yep. Um, so we have a question from from a new person who just came in. Um, uh, where is it? I missed it. Oh, Jello from above is asking: Is this only women that are afflicted? Technically, so like, I think the answer to this is like, this is most of what we're talking about here is conflict that occurs during pregnancy. And the conflict is between the mom and whatever the baby is. And the sex right. of the baby, as of yet, we don't know that it matters. Um, so theoretically, it is a conflict between mom and baby, no matter the sex. So, so, so theoretically, a, a male baby could also cause issues. 
So that's true, but with the yeah. micro chimera business, so what Carl Zimmer wrote in that <clears throat> article is that mm. mothers will, will retain some fetal cells in her body, but you guys out there in the audience, you probably also have some of your mom's cells because it's a two-way street. Right. There are stem cells from mother that actually make their way across the placenta and make their way into your body. And is this, so <laughs> someone actually asked if this is some, a leftover from the umbilical cord? Is that, I mean, theoretically it is coming through the umbilical cord, but is it actually, I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss for words at the moment, but like, does it have anything to do with the fact that you still have a little bit of your umbilical cord in your belly button? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking about this happening during pregnancy in which there's this two-way exchange <clears> of cells <throat> that happens. So the fetus gets some of mom's cells and mom gets some of the fetal cells. And mom is more likely to actually have this implantation of these foreign cells because she's immunocompromised. Right. And the whole reason why pregnancy happens is that mom doesn't reject the pregnancy totally. Yeah, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So that happens. So yeah, the, the, this exchange <clears throat> is going to happen through the placenta, and it's going to happen at least in part via the, the umbilical vein and artery. That's true. Sure. Makes I mean, that, yeah, that is the, the vehicle for yeah. a lot of it. That's the highway. <laughs> <laughs> this is the question everyone is wondering. Can we harvest these cells from us to clone our own moms? <laughs> what a great idea. Yeah. I love it. At least in theory. Sure, why not? <laughs> uh, oh, oh, we've got, okay, let's see. Let me see. Thomasaur, hang up. Jello from above. Kayli, mm -hmm. Asmunder Gunderson. Thank you guys for the follows. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, okay, yeah. This is, this is good shit. Zufu, the umbilical mm -hmm. cord, that is where your, your, that's your belly button. Your belly button is cut off at the umbilical cord. It goes straight into your belly. It seems so weird when you think about it, that we just, we're like plugged in at the belly and then it gets clipped off and there then tied it. up into your belly button. Insane, right? And like, do you, so as a physician, mm -hmm. do you know what predicts whether you have an innie or an outie? How fat you are. <laughs> is it really like as a baby or as, as baby? an adult? Um, I have to say I have not given that question much thought. Okay, that's fair. Mm -hmm. But I'm just like, is it like OB technique of tying or like what? No, like, I mean, or like so how much is left on the umbilical cord? Like maybe that could be true. But usually, what happens is they will tie it off. There'll be a little <clears> bit of, <throat> of the umbilical cord so, still there, right? And that part will eventually and fall it falls off. off, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the belly right. button is what's left over. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Like what happens if you leave good. the umbilical cord untied? Well, if you think about it, that probably is the way things happened in the past. Yeah, right? I mean, I can't imagine we had like you know fifty thousand year old belly button tires. You know what? This is a you great question know. for like what happens in chimpanzees. Yeah, totally. Do I mean, I think it, it just off? falls off. Actually, yeah, that's possible. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, it's kind of fibrous and tough. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I bet mom bites it off. I bet so too. Well, that's actually so a too. new uh, kind of a that's trend in pregnancy is that instead of tying off the umbilical cord right away, yeah. that, that we actually let some of the blood from the placenta go to the baby. And then, so we delay the tying off of the placenta. Interesting. So that's more a more natural or more evolved scenario. And the idea is that that prevents the neonate from being anemic. 
Right. That there's more transfer of white blood cells that can actually protect the baby. Mm -hmm. There's this new new idea. So kind of goes along with the idea that you know, knowing something about what is the natural state and why certain things have evolved and knowing something about adaptations that might promote the health of the baby, that these kinds of things are useful for modern obstetrics. Uh, <laughs> so the same person who Googled canned placenta earlier also may have Googled canned umbilical cord. <laughs> why? Why would you do this? And repeats, don't Google yeah, canned don't, anything, don't really. Ever. Yeah. Have you guys ever seen potted meat? No. That's a thing. It comes in a can. Okay. Yep. I'm not even entirely sure what it is, but it literally says potted meat. Sounds really, really delightful. Somebody smarter than us will have to fill yep. us in. That's right. <laughs> Ew, potted meat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I had a question a moment ago. Yeah? And I lost it because of the potted meat comment. Damn it. You lost the thread? Yes. Um... But you can go backwards. And oh, play. here we go. I remember now. Uh, total tangent here, but super interesting topic. Cord blood. Mm -hmm. That's a new thing these days as well. So the idea is that the cord blood contains stem cells. <clears throat> right. That might be useful. Yeah. And so apparently I have heard recently, because I have a couple friends who are either actively pregnant or who have just recently had babies in New Mexico, that there's not a place to... Uh, donate cord blood samples. To store them? Yeah, to store them in New Mexico, apparently. Hmm. So, who, but this is like a, a more common thing these days because we've now, now that we have the ability to learn more and more about the utility of stem cells, um, there is this big push to store your baby's own stem cells from birth for its entire lifetime. I mean, it I makes, it makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. Or the, the tech in terms of being able to figure out how to make right. that stem cell differentiate into a liver. <clears throat> I had two patients yesterday who needed a liver transplants. Oh, there, really? There are not enough livers to go around. So wouldn't it be great if you could just grow your own? Yeah. They I work. mean, that's so that's the idea is that, like, if we get to the point where we can, like, completely grow a new organ that is it is unique to us so we don't have to have all of these same problems with transplants where... You have the uh, rejection problem. Mm -hmm. It's your own liver that you've grown. Um, and you could just grow organs over and over and over again, theoretically. Um, that, that there's a lot of capability there that we, don't, we haven't even really begun to, to realize. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit sci-fi. But we were just saying that part of your liver might actually be your mom's liver. Right. right, yeah, like a couple of your cells, your liver cells might be So I would bet moms. you that you could, that success after transplantation might depend at least in part on how much of a chimera you are. Ooh. That makes sense, right? Yeah, what's, so that begs the question, what's the threshold for your body recognizing your liver as its own or not? So like, if there's right. 10 cells of your mom's in your liver... And the all of the rest of the zillions of them are your own. Does it does it know? Or like, I don't what's know. the like, what's the number? Like, does it have to be a hundred thousand? Or you know, you know what I mean? I don't know that we can ever figure that out, but it's an interesting thing to we think can. about. Maybe we can. We're scientists. Yeah, I mean, but there are plenty of non-testable <laughs> things, you know. That's true. So, um, <laughs> yeah, have twin babies store one in cold storage. <laughs>
Hmm. You know, these crazy ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. We're not going to advocate for this. No, certainly not. The ethics of that are are touchy. Let's mm -hmm. say. Uh, wouldn't age and epigenetics also be a factor? Totally. Yep. Absolutely. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Oh yeah. We actually do need to have a much larger conversation about epigenetics. That is a rabbit hole that I really. It's a it's a tough one. Down. Coffee and I tried to have we had a podcast on epigenetics. Yeah, it's hard. Yep. We don't know that much about it, honestly, at this point yet. Yeah. We know a decent amount, but it's like it's still very much in its infancy. Well, isn't it true that only three percent of your genome is coding? <clears throat> I think that's right. Ye so of, yeah, of something genes, like that. I mean, we've talked a, about it as like yeah. junk DNA for a long time, but we're now learning that that's kind of a misnomer. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of the junk DNA or the microRNAs, <laughs> they're they are they have a regulatory mm. function. In terms of yes, kind of right. regulating, ramping things up, ramping yep. things down. The imprinting that we talked about here, whether yeah. or not a gene gets turned off or turned that's on. That's a regulation that's thing. That's a regulation thing. That's epigenetics. It's epigenetics. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, like gene, gene regulation, gene expression is super, super interesting. And th this is like the next phase of, of genetics research, essentially. And it's, it's, it's now getting epigenetics as its own title now. Um, and it's it's not just what genes you have; it's what genes you have that are turned on or off at any given moment, and then what drives those genes being turned on or off. Yeah. Um, and like we're starting to see things with um, with the the Kelly twins space experiment from the space station um, changes in DNA methylation, which methylation is one of the ways that. It's, it's essentially your gene gets attached with a methyl group, so that's the methylation piece, and that actually turns the gene off. Most, most of the time it's an off switch. So there was an increase in methylation in the, the Kelly twin that was in space for a year. So, so we're now learning right. that, that G, zero G is promoting methylation. So like yeah. all of those genes that got turned off, that's changing what genes are actually being actively expressed. Yeah, so the, he the headline was, cool. you know, space changes your genes. I know, not true. not true, not Changes true. gene regulation. Yes. Yeah, which is more right. interesting. Yeah. I love, I, I think it's more interesting. I think it's more interesting. I love the fact that there's this additional layer of complexity. Yeah, I, totally. I think it's fantastic. I, I, I am generally a really big fan of nuance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's maybe the anthropologist in me, I guess, but like, Things these days are just not especially nuanced, and whenever you can get just, it's like, oh, give it, give me more nuance. Like the the second I can get a little bit of nuance, I'm like, yes, 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 <laughs> come on. Um, and that that I would say that that press piece or the series of press pieces that came out about that, right? I would say that's one of the worst blunders that I've seen in the press recently. It was just like, it's not. It's a complicated issue, but it can be communicated effectively in a way that is nuanced and accurate, as opposed to space changes your genes. But is it clickbait? Everything's clickbait these days. Right. Space changes your epigenetic regulation yeah, of your right. genes. Um, but yeah, so we'll see you guys uh, next time on here, and, and I hope you guys have a really wonderful night. Thank you guys so much for hanging out. Until next time. And See you guys next time. Have yeah. a wonderful night, morning, whatever time it is. Bye, guys.